0: Okay, very good. All right, welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for finding your seats. Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are just so grateful for this opportunity to come before you this morning to offer you praise and worship. Lord, uh, as we gather this morning, I pray that our minds would be attentive, be focused on the truths of your scripture. Lord, um, help us uh, not be distracted this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified by our lesson this morning. Uh, we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, this morning, as you guys know, we've been going through um, a series, or really just getting started on a series on how to think biblically, and we're using a, a book that's been put together by the the leaders of the Master's Seminary and the Master's College on different topics on how to to orient your thinking and and Bart did a great job last week of really kind of setting the groundwork for what is a biblical worldview. And if any of you guys are Al Mohler fans and listen to the, the pulpit briefing, or I'm sorry, the daily briefing that, um, that he does every day, that's a big piece of what he does is get you to think about current events and, and things that we interface with on a day-to-day basis through the lens of a biblical worldview and how do you think about that in terms of um, its impact on the scripture or, or gospel or et- eternal um, um, situation. So... Um, that's a wonderful thing that he does, but it's really on current events, so it's not, it's not um, comprehensive in its, in its scope. And so the lesson that we're doing today is really looking at how do we develop and cultivate a biblical mindset? How do we train our minds to interact with the world? How do we protect ourselves from corrupted thinking? How do we offensively go after um, thinking biblically and taking our perspective, which we know is the truth, and lay it on top of the world and go out and evangelize the world, but also challenge thoughts that, that are anti-biblical? And how do we first cultivate that thought, but then how do we really go after and engage in a battle on the, on the, the mental um, battlefield? So those are some of the things we're going to look at today. So uh, first and foremost, we all have heard this, this concept of that a mind is a terrible thing to waste, and it absolutely is. Um, but there's a couple things to consider when we think about a biblical mindset um, on a wasted mind. We're going to today examine the fundamental idea that a human mind is a couple of things, redemptively focused on Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord plus being renewed by the scripture and then receiving a quality education both formal and informal so things we observe and then some things that we actually go out and try to obtain more knowledge on from the perspective of a Christian worldview and this will be the mind that achieves the greatest gains and experiences and the least amount of waste so if we don't want to waste our mind these are some things we'll think about A Christian worldview considers both the intellectual and the spiritual aspects of humanity as it's as inseparable, as completely integrated and connected from the very beginning of creation. So, when God created Adam and Eve, He brought them into existence into His own image, with a mind that immediately followed, allowed them to think, communicate, and act. That's how they were created. God desired that his creation love him intensely with the mind, and the intellectual and spiritual dimensions were linked in creation of humanity and in God's will for them. This is how we were formed and made. Proverbs twenty-seven nineteen refers to the individual character and mind of a human being and says, as in water, face reflects face, and so the heart of man reflects the man. Who Adam and Eve were to become would depend in some measure on how they thought. And in Proverbs 23, 7 says, for uh, as he thinks within himself, so he is. So a person who thinks righteously will tend to act righteously. And conversely, a person who thinks sinfully will tend to act sinfully. So the mind is a powerful filter and a powerful lens and a powerful precursor for what we'll actually do. Both the ethical dimensions of your thought life greatly determine your your behavior, and this same principle is generally recognized in this cultural proverb. Um, and I hadn't heard this in years, but this was referenced in the book. So a thought, so a thought, reap an act. So an act, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. And it bears out in, in scripture as well. So the mind is a terrible thing to waste, because to waste a mind. If we follow this logical conclusion, is to waste a person. Because who you are is defined in how you think and what you allow into your mind and what comes out of your mind. So we could say the mind has already been wasted. If we stop there, we would be a little depressed. But the mind has already been wasted. If we look at the Pauline epistles, we see numerous references to the human mind that indicate it's already been severely damaged and only shortly after God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So here's 12 different, and we could probably find more, 12 different negative New Testament words that describe the ruin of a man's intellectual capacity. So Romans 1.28 says we're debased, we're hardened, according to Second Corinthians, blinded, futile, darkened, hostile, deluded, deceived, sensuous, depraved, corrupted, defiled. So as a result of this mental mayhem, people are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, according to 2 Timothy. And some even have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, according to Romans 10. And this represents the most tragic expression of a wasted mind. So now, this does not mean that humans have been intellectually reduced to the, to the mental capacity of animals. It's quite opposite. We're pretty smart. I mean, not compared to God, but we have a lot of capacity for thinking and doing. We see that in what we've been able to do and how our thinking is, has come along in, the, in the, the thousands of years we've been around. It doesn't suggest that humans can't achieve an extraordinary levels like a, a Nobel or a Pulitzer Prize winner. It doesn't mean that there can't be a Mensa level, which is the top 2% of, of thinkers. Um, it doesn't mean we can't have that level of intelligence. It doesn't mean that individuals can't perform any good deeds at all or live according to some set of moral values. No, we see this all the time in the unbelieving world. But what does it mean? Well, before we can answer that question, we have to ask, what happened? What happened and why was the mind wasted? How did the human mind get wasted? And so that brings us to a story. So at the completion of creation, God saw that everything that he made, and behold, it was very good, according to Genesis 131. Adam and Eve were in righteous fellowship with God and had been given dominion over all of God's creation. But then Genesis 3:1 through 7 describes the far-reaching and devastating blow to the human mind that would affect every human being who lived thereafter. So without question Satan waged war against God and the human race in this monumental passage where the battlefield turns out to be the very mind of Eve, of Eve. In the end Eve exchanged the truth of God for the lie of Satan, and the human mind was never the same again, and we all inherited the consequences of that decision. And so we see in Genesis three, and I love the way that um, Richard Mayhew, Dick Mayhew um, kind of aligned this thinking, because it's so important as what I want you to consider as we're going along, and if you're taking notes, which I hope you are, what I hope you are going to note is the thought process of sin. How did it start? And how do you see it interact with your own sinful tendencies? Where does sin start? We know, according to James, sin starts in your mind. You harbor a thought, and you feed it. You dwell on it, you feed it, and you consider it, Then you rationalize it, right? And then you do it. And so, see how... Um, how Eve did this here. So Dick Mayhew said the empirical method in primitive in primitive form actually began in Genesis 3. And we say empirical means that uh, it's the testing of an idea, right? We have a hypothesis. We're going to test it and see if it's true. So when Eve concluded that the only way she could decide whether God was right or wrong after Satan had planted the seeds of doubt about God's truthfulness in her mind Involved testing him with her own mind and senses, and here's the beginning of the of the departure, right? So we were completely in aligned. Adam and Eve were with God in complete harmony and fellowship, and then a a thought process was uh, embedded by Satan, and there was a slight deviation that had occurred as soon as Eve said, "Well, I wonder if it's true," and then she went on. So in short order, Eve basically bought into the lie of Satan and believed that she had a choice. Eve believed that she alone could determine the best choice with her own mind. God's command was no longer authoritative in her mind, because it couldn't be. Right now she's testing God, so God's not authoritative in her life anymore. God's verbal revelation no longer dictated what was right and what was wrong in her life. If you've sinned, which you have, it started with you not... Um, being dictated to by the Lord's word and by his commands and his authority. God's authoritative instruction became optional because all of a sudden, thanks to Satan, there were other alternatives. And we live in a world now with millions of alternatives to scripture. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. It was from six. So here we find the first historical practice of empirical research and in inductive reasoning at its infancy. In the first act of human rebellion, Eve decided to conduct three tests on the tree in order to see whether God or Satan was right. Based on this positive response, she ran... I'm sorry, uh, the first being that of a physical value. A physical value. In the first act of human rebellion, Eve... I'm sorry, man, I'm getting confused. I did that wrong. Um, uh, The first being that of a physical value. So she observed the tree and in examining it, she saw that its fruit was good for food. So she looked at it and said, okay... There's, uh, there's nutritional value here. It's, uh, it's good for food. That's so, so that seems fine. That seems okay. So let's move on to the second test because we, we saw that that was right. So Eve realized that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. Not only would it benefit her body nutritionally, she also discovered that it had an emotional or aesthetic value. And how many times do we do that with things that we want? Right, we see the billboard Darren and, and Ann and I were talking last night after some folks left our house and just seeing the immediacy and things are just thrown at your face and you see man it's beautiful I want that people who are beautiful have it and you get that and you rationalize in your mind this aesthetic value and so it has some nutritional value the apple does it has some aesthetic or emotional value and then she gazed upon it and found that it was a delight to the eye she felt good about the tree She said, okay, this is a good thing now. Now we're starting to rationalize a little bit. In her final test, she looked and saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Okay, so it also had intellectual value, and that would make her wise like God. So in the midst of Eve's deliberation, she saw and thought that the tree really was good. That was her ultimate conclusion that she came to. It met her needs physically, aesthetically, and intellectually. Her mind drew the inference that God was wrong and that God had lied. Satan's deceit had successfully lured her away from God's absolute and unfailing truth. We all understand many truths about God, and we see it in Scripture. We're taught from the pulpit and our Sunday schools and all these things. But at some point when you sin and you go through that rationalization process, you're making a decision to say that God has lied about this command. And you're choosing something else. And it's an active act of the will. The human mind here in the garden was about to be wasted forever being deceived led to disobedience as Eve rejected God's instructions, took from the tree's fruit and ate, and then Adam quickly did the same. So Paul summarized Eve's disastrous act this way, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ in 2 Corinthians. The human mind was wasted by sin. And man's mind was so debilitated by it that fellowship with God proved no longer humanly possible. And the ability to see and understand life from God's perspective vanished. The human race was now estranged from, it, from uh, its God and its creator. And that, if we just left there, if we just stopped in Genesis, then the human creation, the creation of the world would be a, a tragic... Um, mistake it would be a, a f- complete failure by God but we know we have illumination that that is not where it ended god has had a plan all the way all along that included this act of rebellion so it begs the question can the mind actually be reclaimed if that's the state of our minds, that's what we've inherited from Adam and Eve, um, is this, this mind that's completely contrary to the will of God and that we've broken fellowship with him forever. Can it be reclaimed? Well, before the fall, Adam and Eve held, held the mere potential to sin. But after the fall, they possessed a full-blown inclination to sin. And that's where we pick our story up, right? Their lives were now cursed rather than blessed. They would have to think and live apart from God. The human race seemed doomed without hope beyond death. But I love this phrase whenever in Scripture we come across it, but God, don't you? I love that because you know you're getting ready to see the hope. God in his mercy and grace provided a Savior who could reestablish a right relationship between God and the alienated human race on an individual basis. So if you guys would all turn your Bibles to Titus 3, 4 through 7, please. Titus 3, 4 through 7. As you're finding that, you know, we've heard it said many times to preach the gospel to yourself daily. Many of you have been believers for many, many years. Some of you are just baby Christians. Some of you don't know Christ as Savior yet. Preach the gospel to yourself. It's good for salvation. It's also good for remembering what you've been saved from. It also helps your thought process. Titus 3, 4 through 7 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, can the mind be reclaimed, according to Titus? Absolutely, but only, only through our salvation. And as a result of salvation, the mind of a newly redeemed person knows and comprehends the glory of God, whereas before it was blinded by Satan. Now we have a new nature, we have a new mind. We're not fighting this battle with our own human depravity. We're fighting this battle with Christ, the Holy Spirit, and with the blessing of God the Father. The person now possesses the helmet of salvation that Paul references to protect the mind against the schemes of Satan rather than being left vulnerable against him as before salvation. The full armor of God begins with the helmet of salvation. The mind has to be engaged in that process. This new person now has knowledge of God and his will that he or she previously did not possess. We've been enlightened. We have scripture. We have the mind of Christ. And so we have a renewed mind. When you enter into a personal relationship with Christ, you become a new creation who sings a new song. But that doesn't mean that everything becomes new in the sense of perfection in your current walk. I think we can all attest to that, right? I think I sinned twice this morning, and not to make light of it, literally just trying to get going in my day, it doesn't mean perfection. The mind acquires a new way to think and a new capacity to clean up the old ways of thinking. It's a process. We call it sanctification. But it's the continual washing of your mind and the Word, and adhering to that, we call that obedience. And then replacing old thoughts, old habits with new ones, with right ones, with truth. So God is in the business of mind renewal for Christians. Before I was a believer, I thought that was crazy. Because you see, you think you're brainwashed. These people don't think for themselves. Man, could that be any further than the truth? It's you aligning your heart and soul and mind with the will of God. And there is nothing better than that. There's nothing more freeing than that. And I think it's a major misconception of the world. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Your mind. So the Bible says to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Colossians 3, 2 Paul put this concept in military terms in 2 Corinthians when he said, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised by the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It is a battle of the mind where you lose or you win. So how do we do this? We say, that's great. That's great. How do we do this? Well, the scripture is the mind of God. Can we agree to that? It's his revelation to us. It's not all of his mind, but it's all that God cared to give us as believers, right? So there's nothing else we need to know at this point because God didn't give us more. That's what we need. So to think like God, we must think like his word, like scripture. Paul encouraged the Colossians to let every word of Christ richly dwell within them. We must use the Bible. This is not rocket science. We have the revelation of, of God given to us in Scripture. How do we become more like God in our thinking? Read a Scripture through his Bible. We must always be on guard lest we turn to foolish and unbiblical thought patterns due to the lingering effects of sin. People who are looking to secular books for how to handle their marriage, how to fight um, addiction, how to raise their children. Why? Would we ever turn to those things when we have Scripture and we have men who have dedicated their lives to unearthing the treasures that Scripture holds as it pertains to those topics? We go to Scripture for those things, and then we inform the world of what God's plan was for their life and what God has to say on these particular issues. And so we have Scripture, which we have to be committed to, daily thoughtfully but we also have other help too an unbeliever that goes to the scriptures might find some value most likely a rationalization for whatever they wanted to do in the first place right and we call that a proof text but as believers we have an arsenal we have like the atomic bomb of thought process stored in our being and we call that the holy spirit and I have to tell you, as the early part of my walk, the Holy Spirit piece of salvation was something that seemed almost mythical, uh, You know, kind of beyond grasp, didn't really understand how it played out. The more I walk the, and as I've come to know Christ more and more, you realize that none of this is possible without the Holy Spirit. None of it is. None of your understanding. He opened your eyes. He opened your mind. He takes truths and sticks them right in the middle of your heart and makes you weep over it. That's the Holy Spirit that does that. And so we have an illuminated mind, illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Believers need God's help to understand God's word. We need it from the pulpit. We need it from teachers. Most importantly, though, we need it from the Holy Spirit. Now we have received... I'm sorry, uh, let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians two twelve, thirteen. You guys are engaged this morning with your Bibles. First Corinthians two, twelve through thirteen, I think I have it listed up there, I do. Yep. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Theologians call this illumination. A great prayer to offer before you ever open up your scripture, before you ever open your Bible in the morning, is to say, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. Psalms 119.18 says that. You can use your own words if you want, but those are pretty good. And acknowledges a colossal need for God's light in scripture you just recognize right off the bat i can't see everything i'm supposed to see i can't understand everything i'm supposed to understand without your illumination lord so please open my eyes open my heart apply these truths to my heart and then let god do that god wants christians to know and understand and obey and he gives us the help we need through his holy spirit Paul and John also comment on this. If you'll turn to Ephesians 1 18, 19. Ephesians one eighteen, verse uh, verses eighteen through nineteen. I'm sorry. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you; that what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints; and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great mind. 1 John 2.27 says, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it it is taught you, abide in him. And so we have an illuminated mind through the Holy Spirit that helps us in this endeavor. So we start off with this tragic beginning, right? That, that, that we've inherited the fallen mind, that we have been separated from God. And that's where the bulk of humanity lies and has lied ever since creation. But we start to see how the Lord is picking up the pieces. And a lot of it starts with the mind, and so he gives us what we need. He's not a, an oppressor. He's not setting a bar that is so high that he would not give you help. What father would give a child a task to do that they were completely unable to complete? That would be an oppressive father, a domineering father. No, a father goes and helps and gives tools and resources and training. Well, our heavenly father does that much more to a whole new level that we can only hope to imitate. So he gives us his word, and he says, this is my mind as it pertains to what you need to know. Cherish it. Read it. Apply it to your hearts. I've given you a Holy Spirit. Christ said the helper, right, is going to come and help open these truths to you and stick them to your heart like a knife. And then... We have the mind of Christ. What? We have the Christ-like mind? Revelation 1.3 talks to the fact that when we think like God, wants us to think and act like God, wants us to act, then we will receive God's blessing for obedience. Spiritually, the Christian will be, able, will be that obedient child, that pure bride and that healthy sheep in Christ's flock who experiences the greatest intimacy with God. And so if that's the highest intimacy, then we can say that the mind also possesses the greatest ability to be the greatest idolater. The ultimate form of idolatry would be to reject the mind of God and Scripture and worship at the altar of your own independent thinking. I love how Dr. Dick Mayhew says that. A believer's greatest intimacy with the Lord will be those times when our Lord's thoughts supersede our own, and our behavior then models that of Christ. That would be the best scenario. That's obedience. That's walking along the uh, the lines of God's will. We should stand in awe of God's mind, as Paul did. Turn to Romans eleven thirty three through thirty six. Romans eleven thirty three through thirty six. We'll just look at a piece of it. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him or all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. The ultimate pattern of maintaining the Christian mind is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul declares, "But we have the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians. How? We have it with the Bible, which is God's sufficient and special revelation. John Owen said it this way: We can test ourselves by asking whether our spiritual thoughts are like the guest visiting a hotel or like children living at home. There is a temporary stir and bustle when guests arrive, yet within a little while they leave and are forgotten. The hotel is then prepared for other guests. So it is with religious thoughts that are only occasional. But children belong to their house. They are missed if they don't come home. Preparation is continually made for for their food and their comfort spiritual thoughts that arise from true spiritual mindedness are like the children of the house. Always expected and certainly inquired for if they're missing. I thought that was a good word picture for cultivating that that Christ-like mind. So we have uh, truth, Satan, and the Christian mind. God is true, and communicates only the truth. Therefore, God's word is truth. If we can follow that logic, if you agree with that, you're in the right spot. It sets the disciples of Christ free from sin and spiritual ignorance. And it's not surprising since God is perfect in knowledge and knows all, and God defines the standard for rational thought. The Christian mind should be a repository of God's revealed truth, It should not fear, quake, waver, compromise, or bend in the face of opposing ideas or seemingly superior arguments. You have everything you need to know to go and engage the world in debate. You do not have to fall down in front of some PhD rocket scientist who espouses all kinds of things found from science that I guarantee are different from 25 years ago and will change in another 25 years. Stop holding them up so high. You have everything you need. You have the mind of Christ. You have his revealed word. Inform your mind of it though so you don't get tossed to and fro by every doctrine and every whimsical thought that comes into the, to the world purview. That's what that's saying. Tristan should be the champion of truth in a world filled with lies that are deceivingly disguised and falsely declared as the truth. You have to stand up and understand what you have in your Bibles. But we are in a battle over this turf, this Christian thinking, this battle for truth. And it's a big battle. We could go, I mean, we could literally f- spend years on this topic and the postmodern uh, way of thinking. And, and Phil Johnson's done some amazing work on this concept. But the battleground for truth has been waged since the Garden. So it's just. Satan's just kind of changing up how he goes about it, but not even that much. He's not that clever. Satan would have believers think contrary to God's word and then act disobediently to God's will. If we stop right there, you got what you need to go fight sin right now. Satan wants you to act different to what God said in Scripture. He wants you to disobey what what God said. So if you go and you disobey and you rationalize like Eve did and you take a look at things and you say, okay, it's good, it's really pretty, and I want it, therefore it's good, Satan wins. That's basically what that's saying. Before we became believers, our minds were blinded by the devil. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians, that's what Satan's done. That's been his battle plan all along. And even after salvation, Satan continues his intellectual assault. Paul had a great concern for this for the Corinthian church. He said to them, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere excuse me, and pure devotion to Christ. That's what Paul's concern was. It's still the same concern today. Eve allowed Satan to do some some thinking for her, and then she did some of her own thinking, independent of God. And when her conclusions differed from God, she chose to act on her own conclusions, not on God's command, and we call that sin. So Satan aims his fiery darts at the minds of believers, Lost my spot, sorry. Making their thought, the life, uh, their thought life the battlefield for spiritual conquest. This is a battlefield. And the more you understand that you're engaged in a battle, the more you understand that there's a fight, that you have a foe that you are up against, I think the better armed you're going to be. That's what Paul said. We talked about arming yourselves with um, with the, uh, um, the armor of God. Thank you, full armor of God. Thank you. Totally left out of my head. Do my own thinking. All right. Um, scripture accounts abound for those who succumbed, right? We see all over Scripture those who have lost that battle. We can think you know, of Eve. We talked about her extensively this morning. We think about Peter when he disobeyed Christ, when he denied him three times. God even told him he was going to do it. He said, no, he did it. And then we see others who have walked away from that fight as victors. We see Job have victory in this, in this fight. We saw Christ have victory in this fight. How did Christ fight Satan? Scripture, right? That's what we're talking about here. In warning believers about life's ongoing and never-ending battle with Satan, um, Paul on two occasions tells about the schemes or designs of the devil. This is what I was looking for. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We know what his battle plan is. We know that he's going to try and, to distort the truth, either small, in a small measure or a great measure. But he's going to attempt to distort the truth. If we stick to what Scripture says, we're going to be all right. His battle plan hasn't changed. Paul talked about that. We know what he's going to do. But we still do it, don't we? No one is immune from this attack from Satan. And we must think of Peter's encouragement in 1 Peter. Therefore, and who knows knows better than Peter, right? His own misfortunes were documented in Scripture. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So much of what we've discussed thus far has been preventative, defensive in nature, right? Not overly offensive. That's probably because the majority of Scripture speaks to personal protection of your thought life, your sin life. But Paul does give us some insight on how to go into the intellectual offensive, and I like being offensive. I don't know how you guys act, but when I'm engaged in a fight and I'm being offensive, I, say, I make this rationalization with my wife and I drive too. If I'm going faster and I'm making the moves, then you know, I'm in a better chance to, to come out on top. I take the same, same perspective in my, in my fight against sin. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10.4. Figure out how we can go on the intellectual offensive. Have it up there, too, if you don't have your Bibles. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Any philosophy, worldview, apologetic, or any other kind of teaching that undermines, minimizes, contradicts, or tries to eliminate the Christian worldview must be met head-on with an aggressive and offensive battle plan. I agree completely with that. That's Dick Mayhew's, but I can completely agree with that. In my mind, if you are training yourselves up to fight against sin, especially where you know you have tendencies to sin, then you are better armed. You're taking the fight to them. And what I see that as being is we don't have to cow down to the world's thoughts. We don't have to accept truth just because somebody else said it. And somebody put, like Steve likes to say, just because somebody puts a cardboard, a bunch of pages and a piece of cardboard on it doesn't make them the authority over that thought. This makes them able to put a bunch of words together. And some, we can take a lot from the world. There are good thoughts. There's good stuff that's come. There's good research that's come out of the world. But we take it with the lens of the biblical worldview, and we can go after that. We can be confident in that. We don't have to cow down in the intellectual battlefield. So we use the Christian mind to do this. Psalm 119 provides detailed insight into a Christian's new revelation to the Bible, which contains the mind of Christ. So a believer, we know there will be a great love of the Scriptures. If you're a believer, Psalm 119 says there will be a great love of the Scriptures. And a believer in Christ will have a strong desire to know God's Word as the best way to know God. And when you know God, it leads to obeying Him. You can't obey what you don't know. So you have to train your minds. And we were in Cornerstone for years. That's what we talked about. You have to know scripture. Otherwise, you can't inform your thought process. You can't inform your mind. You've already lost the battle before you've begun. If you're not in your Bibles daily, you will lose. That's what that means. You'll lose. <clears throat> Meditation. All right, look. This isn't something that I do a lot of. But I'm, I want to be obedient to scripture, and so I'm going to start trying to do this more. And, then, and when I always think of meditation, I think of the Hindu dude with the, the arms, their legs crossed, and, the, you know, elbows on knees, not at all a scriptural view of meditation. And when I went through this, it made sense. It clicked for me, so hopefully it clicks for you too. To hear something once for most people is not enough absolutely, for me, truth. I don't know if any of you guys, maybe Chad, who's like that Mensa guy, like maybe once is enough. But for me, to hear something once is not enough, probably for most of you too. To briefly ponder something profound does not allow enough time to grasp or fully understand its significance. Especially nowadays, we got stuff like coming at us like a freely. we're like in the oncoming traffic and thoughts are just zooming into us and through us and gone. And really, do we even think anymore? is what I started thinking about. This proves to be most true with God's mind in Scripture. If we just glance past it, it doesn't stick. It doesn't inform our hearts. It doesn't inform our conscience. Maybe you'll keep a quarter of it. Maybe. But probably not even that. Meditation involves prolonged thought or pondering. We would say it, chew on it. Right? That's how we would say it. You chew on a fun. I like that. You just kind of... And that for me and my, you know, simple mind, that makes more sense to me than meditation. Just chew on it. Take a, a piece of scripture and chew on it until you get every last bit of flavor out of it. Moll it over. Think about how it applies. Where have you failed against it? How could you do it better? How could you help your wife? How could you help your husband or your kids understand the same truth? Think of a coffee percolator. For me, this spoke volumes. Ann and I like a lot of coffee. Water goes up a small tube, drains down throughout the coffee grounds. After it cycles enough, the flavor of the coffee beans has transferred itself to the water. Now you no know longer have water, you have what we call coffee, right? We like coffee. We as Christians need to cycle our thoughts through the grounds of God's word until we start to think like God and then act godly. That's not my metaphor, that's Dick Mayhew's, but it spoke volumes to me. Scripture commands that believers meditate in three areas, on God, on God's word, and on God's works. To think about those things. And you can always tell somebody by their prayer who has really actually thought about some of those things. It's just so much, right? I listen to Ben pray sometimes. and It's such a rich understanding of who God is. It's because he's meditated on God himself. God's word God's works to pray through scripture because you have meditated on a particular scripture you can't remove it from your heart it's chiseled like on stone in your heart because you've meditated on it meditation also helps God's word uh, to help cleanse away the old thoughts that are not of God because it places and replaces and reinforces new thoughts from scripture and that's great. You have this obscure thought on a particular issue and you read scripture that's a, that counteracts that. But you don't just read it and let it go. You read it and you chew on it and, you, and think about it over and over again and now you've replaced that obscure thought that was a lie and replaced it with God's truth and now that it's like that thought never existed. You've defeated it. That's a small victory. Meditation also puts a protective shield around the mind to block and reject incoming thoughts that contradict God. Okay, so what other things can we think about? What other things can we meditate? We could think on these things from Philippians 4. Think on things that are true, that are honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy thinking and meditating on these things will avoid setting our minds on earthly things and keep us from being double-minded, as James warned against. So just some thoughts on that. Hopefully you guys are writing that down. Okay, so how do we balance revelation and reason? We kind of alluded to this a little bit before. Are divine revelation and human reason, like oil and water, do they never mix? Can we not? If we're Christians now, do we have to completely exclude the world's teachings. Some people think so. As Christians, we sometimes reach two erroneous extremes when we talk about this balancing act. First, there's anti-intellectualism. It basically says that if a subject matter is not discussed in the Bible, it's not worthy of serious thought or study. Right? These are people who are usually the only read the red also in, in their Bibles. Only what the Bible teaches on a topic should be examined. Well, this unbiblical approach to learning and thinking leads to cultural and intellectual withdrawal. And we see this sometimes. And, and some people do this as a protective measure. Sometimes their upbringing was so adverse that they just cling to the safety, and I understand that. I get that. But we have to engage the culture. We've talked about that. The other extreme is hyper-intellectualism which embraces natural revelation at the same or at a higher level of value and credibility as God's special revelation in Scripture. This is where I think that most of us fall into this trap. right? Scientists. He got a PhD. This guy's written a lot of books on it. Doesn't exactly line up with what God's Word says, but makes some good arguments. I think I'll take that one. Um... When two two are in conflict, natural revelation is the preferred source of truth. And this unbiblical approach results in spiritual withdrawal as well. Spiritual withdrawal, I'm sorry. So it's not an either-or equation, but more it's a both-and process. The proper balance comes by beginning with Scripture, which is inerrant. So we start there. That's what... Fills our worldview. That's the lens that we look on. We put on our Bible glasses. That's what we see everything through. We have to start there because we believe that God's true is, that God's word is true in an Aaron. right? So we have to start there. Where the Bible speaks, Bart spoke to this last week. Where the Bible speaks to a discipline, the truth that is exhibited in the Bible is superior over anything else. We have in a creation account. Okay, well, that supersedes anything that, the, that science says about evolution. We know that's erroneous from the get-go, because the Bible speaks on to creation. When the Bible does not speak, there's a whole world of God's creation to explore for knowledge. If it doesn't speak, we can look to other sources, but a couple of caveats. One, our worldview is filtered through what we know of God's truth, his character, what his will is for our lives. We have to put all that into context for what we're going out and researching. Also, Man's ability to draw conclusions is fallible. So Jim goes out and does a bunch of research on finances for Shafter. He's going to go out and get a bunch of stuff. He's a good Christian man. He's going to set his purview up through um, his worldview of, of the Bible and everything that it entails. He's going to go out and do a bunch of research on specific finances pertaining to running a city. Well, Jim's fallible, so there's still the opportunity for him to make a mistake in that, Right? Not like God's Word. So even though we, are, we have that filter, we can make mistakes in our research. And this is especially true of thinkers who continually, re, continually reject their need of Christ's salvation. So okay, here's a third level. Now it's not a, a, a Christian man or woman who is going out and doing some research. Now some of that research has been done extensively, but by an unbeliever. Somebody whose very nature is what Eve's was after the fall. What we described in the very beginning of this talk. The very nature that is against, not only just kind of letting God's people do their thing, an enemy of God. And we have to think about that as we're engaging the world and the, and the research that's been done there. We have to. This does not necessarily mean that their facts are wrong. Or even that their basic ideas are an error. It could be quite the opposite. But it does guarantee that their worldview is not in accord with God's perspective. And that has to be a serious thought that we think actively about before we engage it. Okay, a couple of things. It's a lot of words up there. I'm going to read through these, but I want to give you some snapshot. I thought these were fantastic. From the perspective of and with a Christian worldview, we are to engage our own minds and the minds of others to best to the best of our ability and opportunity. And I'm excited that the young people are in here because you're getting ready to go to college. And if you don't get to go to master's, you're going to have to engage a, a, a university structure that is completely set against everything that we're talking about this morning. So how do you think through these things? So one... Um, a couple of cautions we need to do. So, one, a bit, a, to become a scholar and to try to change the way one's own generation thinks generally is secondary to becoming a Christian and changing the way one personally thinks about Christ. We see people make this mistake all the time when they engage in politics they go after the issue, they don't go after the heart. That's why it's kind of useless to go after politics, be engaged, be part of the system, but you can't change the world through politics. You can only change it through the heart, one person at a time. That's what that's saying. Formal education in a range of disciplines is a necessary but secondary priority compared to gospel education. Again, the gospel has to be the priority. Third, general revelation at best points to a higher power, while special revelation, the Bible, introduces this higher power personally as the triune Godhead of Scripture who created the world and all that's in it. Fourth, to know about the truth is not nearly as important as personally and redemptively being in fellowship with the truth, Jesus Christ, who is the only source of eternal life. That's got to be what's driving us, that truth. Fifthly, the ultimate accountability in life will not be how much one knows factually, but rather how well one obeys the commands of God. Sixthly, the New Testament church did not have a mandate to, nor did they intellectualize their world. Rather, they gospelized it. And I like that verb. They gospelized it by proclaiming the saving grace of Jesus Christ to a broad range of society members, from key political leaders like King Agrippa to lowly imprisoned slaves like Onesimus. Everywhere, the full spectrum. If you get a, a sit-down with Barack Obama, what I would hope, I, uh, you would say, God forbid, I would hope that you would evangelize him. You wouldn't talk about your pet peeve. You wouldn't talk about just abortion. You wouldn't talk about transgender and all this stuff that's going on. You would talk about the gospel and how he's gotten it wrong for his entire life. It attack the heart. Because man, what happens if Barack Obama gets saved? What if we have a true believer in the middle of his office get, become a true believer as president? Amazing things. Amazing things. So if you get that opportunity... Evangelizing. Seventh, lastly, the moral, to moralize, politicize, or intellectualize society without first seeing spiritual conversion, is to guarantee only a brief and generally inconsistent change that is shallow, not deep; temporary, not lasting; and ultimately damning, not saving. Perfect case in point: our own country. Right, seventeen hundreds. We had some ideas. They, Loosely aligned with what Scripture mandated, but it wasn't a heart change, right? And you see how it's gone. You know, we have a remnant, praise God, but as a nation, that experiment failed. Solomon wrote the most authoritative statement on the subject of the mind and knowledge, and since it's Scripture, it has to be authoritative. He said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Quite simply, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Secondly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight, Proverbs 9. That's what we're talking about. The Alpha and the Omega of the Christian worldview is, one, a knowledge of God. Second, a knowledge of truth. Third, above all, at the very center of a Christian worldview is our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and nothing can be fully understood if God is not known first. That's where we have to start with our thinking process. So, the Christian mind, is it wasted or is it invested? Kate Wilkinson penned this, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. By praying and then living this way, the Christian mind will never be wasted, but rather invested and the glorifying God by bringing our worldview into line with the worldview of God's scripture. So my charge to you, and Dick Mayhew's charge to you, is to think biblically, and rather than waste your mind, you will invest it in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for our new minds, for our new wills, for our new heart, Thank you for your Holy Spirit who enlightens us. Thank you for your Holy Scriptures, which is your mind revealed to us that gives us everything we need to know to honor you, to obey you. Lord, I pray for everyone here that it would inform their hearts, inform their minds with your word, that we would align our wills with your will, that we would ponder thoughts and chew on it until our thoughts become like your thoughts. Lord, I pray that we would be armed to engage the world in understanding, in the battleground for truth that Satan right now appears to be winning, but for you. And Lord, I thank you that we had this opportunity to to think about this important thought. Lord, let us be biblical thinkers and that we would bring you honor and glory and we'd advance your kingdom that much more efficiently. Lord, I thank you and I praise you in Christ's name, amen.